Empire. Call the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question. Adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today with us is Timothy David Snyder. He's an American author and historian specializing in the history of Central and Eastern Europe and the Holocaust, but he's with us today to discuss a fascinating book that I actually just got done reading, and I love it. It's called Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. Uh, Dr. Timothy Snyder, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, glad to have you here, and before we get started, we'll take this quick break. Hi, and we're back with Just Ask the Question. I am your host, uh, Brian Kerman. As I said, with me today is author uh, Dr. Timothy Snyder, who's penned a no new book called Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. And since the title of the, the show is Just Ask the Question, I'll just ask you the question. Uh, do you think that the America suffers from a malady? If you can describe the malady, what is it? Yeah, we suffer from a malady. Um, this, the, the, the symptoms are... We die too young. We die younger than people in comparable countries. Lifespan in this country peaked in 2014. Another symptom is we don't expect enough. Americans, if you ask them about freedom, have a very narrow account of freedom. They don't think enough about their bodies. And we are in a situation where people, people are, 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 have gotten used to pain from the government rather than, rather than happiness. We're in a situation where Americans have gotten used to too much suffering, too much death, and have forgotten that things could be much better than they are. The, the malady around all the symptoms is, is our belief uh, that government can't do more than it is doing. And the malady around all the symptoms is the fact that government is the government that we have is making things worse. How so? When you say the government makes things worse and that we've, we've come to expect pain from our government, specifically, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So I, let, me, let me put it this way. Let's imagine that there's a country where people live three, four, five years longer than we do. Let's imagine there's a country where when you got sick, um, you didn't have to worry about what your insurance was or whether your insurance was better than the next person's. Let's imagine there was a country where because you could take health care and a lot of other things for granted, you weren't anxious all the time. You weren't afraid all the time. You weren't worried about your parents. You weren't worried about your kids. And now let's imagine that that's pretty much every other country in the world at a comparable level of development, except for the United States. Let's imagine that all these things that we worry about all the time are totally unnecessary. That's what I mean when I say that the government has failed us. The government has failed us by allowing a kind of commercial medicine to develop where what counts is profit rather than our bodies. And it's really as simple 
is that. That's what it comes down to. If, if you were in an American hospital and you're an American, you know full well that you're thinking half the time or more about whether the doctors and nurses are doing what they're doing for reasons of money or for reasons of health. In the rest of the developed world, that's just not true. So that's, that's the beginning of what I mean. There's a, a couple of things that you point to in your book. One is you point to uh, Germany and Japan, both countries that were defeated by the United States in World War II now have a far better health system than, than we do. And we help set it up through their, uh, when we help bring these countries back after the end of World War II, that's gotta be a frustrating, well, frustrating for me to read, but is, is I mean, you have gone through hospitals in other countries as I have, and it's uh, fascinating to me that more people don't understand it. Why do you think that is? I, yeah, I, I, I thanks for that question. I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of my adult life in, in Europe. I've been sick. I've been sick in Europe. I've been sick in America. One of my kids was born in Europe. One of my kids was born in America. So this is all real to me. These are not abstract comparisons. So in the book, I, I bring in, you know, not just my own near-death experience in the U.S., in the, in the next chapter, I, I write about what it was like to have children or for my, for my wife to bear children, for us to raise children in the two countries and how, how different that was. And the reason I do this is that I wanna make it seem real. I wanna make Americans see that the, the, the really awful medical system that we have is only one possibility among others. I mean, I feel like the problem in America, when we're talking about health or whether we're talking about anything else is that we think, there's what we have. And you know, maybe we could fiddle around with it a little bit, but we're after all, we're America. So this must be the way things basically are. And you know, it's just not the way things basically are. There are some realms of life where we're really good and there are other realms of life where we're really awful. And I think in the last few decades, actually, since the end of the Cold War, we've lost the habit really of comparing ourselves to other countries and we've gotten objectively worse and some other countries have gotten objectively better. So to return to your initial comparison, I mean, these countries that we defeated in the Second World War, Japan and Germany, these countries that, you know, thanks to American power, among other things, were flat on the ground um, 75 years ago, are now doing much better than we are, um, not just with the pandemic, but with life expectancy and health in general. And that, I think that ought to give us pause. Well, one of the things that you say that uh, part of our malady is that there's nothing in our country, not even life and not even death, where we take the proposition that all men are created equal seriously. I, I take that statement seriously. And there are those who, who look at what you're saying and writing and saying, hey, you're politicizing healthcare. You're doing it. And what's your I, response to them? Yeah, I mean, my response is that it's, 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 it's always gonna be political. And the question is, do you want a politics of death or do you want a politics of life? Do you want a politics where hundreds of thousands of people in your country die unnecessarily of a disease and where the anger and the shame and the grief of that is manipulated, which is where we are now? Do you want a country where you're going to spend three, four, five years less with your, grand, with your grandchildren because you're going to die too soon? That's political too. Um, the decision to have commercial health care is a political decision. There's nothing neutral about it. There's nothing neutral about the thing that we have. The thing that we have is also political. So the question is, do you want a politics of death or do you want a politics of life? Do you want to think, in addition to my other rights, I have a right to health care? 
Because if you think I have a right to healthcare, that's gonna make all of your other rights more meaningful and it's gonna to lead to a better form of politics. So there's, there, I think your question's a great one because I think it points to a basic mistake that Americans make, which is that, hey, there's nothing political about the status quo. The status quo is just natural. That's just the way things are. Right. And that's false. The status quo is completely political. The status quo is a result of political choices. It can be unmade by other political choices and it should be. You know, you, you said something in this book that really hit home for me because I, I recently, my wife and I were present at the birth of our, our first grandson. And it was out in LA. And my son and his uh, wife had to, when they had their child, you know, when, when they went through the childbirthing process, it was completely different from what happened to us in 1989. And it seemed worse. Our, our, our oldest son was born in 1989, we had a birthing suite. It was private. My wife got to stay for, I think it was three days. And then we also, during those three days, she was taught to breastfeed. She was taught, we were taught healthcare. And we spent time with our uh, primary physician and um, her and the pediatrician, the OBGYN, talking about our son and going through, you know, what we would need as parents. Flash forward to last year, our first grandson, it was almost like an assembly line. They pushed him and her out so quick. And I, and I said, you know, you would think 30 years later, we would have advanced a little bit more, but it seems we've gone backward. And until I read your book, I didn't really connect the dots. But it's, it, it seems to me like in, in the last 30 years that we have not progressed in this country as far as healthcare, but regressed. Your thoughts? Yeah, let me let me let me connect that to your previous question. Um, when I said that we don't take all things, we don't take all men being created equal seriously. Yeah, I, I meant precisely from the from from birth. Um, that's that's what I meant. I mean, if if some kids get breastfeed because they're get breastfed because their parents have better care because their parents are wealthier and others don't, that's an inequality which is not the child's responsibility. And you, we, can do, we can do all the talk about personal responsibility we want, but it's just not that infant's personal responsibility. Right. It, it's the responsibility of all of us to make sure that that infant gets a fair start. And, and that's, about, that's not just about equality, that's also about freedom. If we want kids, if we want to be a free country, our kids have to grow up free. For our kids to grow up free, they have to get the things that they need when they're very small. Because one of the things we now know is that the first five years are absolutely essential so you're pointing to something which i find heartbreaking and which is and which is um has terrible implications for the future of the country because freedom is, is not something which is, exists out there in the air freedom has to be passed down from generation to generation and for it to be passed down from generation to generation each generation has to be able to give the thing the next generation needs starting at childbirth and childbirth has to include things like enough time in the hospital to make sure that the mom and the kid is okay enough time in the hospital to make sure that the, the child knows how, learns, learns how to breastfeed. And, and these are things, as you suggest, where progress is not automatic or you can, where things can get worse. If you look at the numbers, we have gotten worse. If you're an American mom, there are 40 countries in the world where you could just hop on a plane and go and you'll be less likely to die in childbirth than, and your child will be less likely to die than in the United States of America, which is itself shameful. If you're an African-American woman, that number is 70, which is just, I, I think is just Jesus. atrocious, right? The idea that an American woman could go to 70 other countries and be safer and her child would be safer than in our country 
I think it just it just signifies the kind of the moral disaster that that we're facing. So, what's the thing that we call progress or the thing that we call efficiency leaves out the person. It, you can make more money by kicking me out of the hospital right after my appendectomy. You can do that. You will make more money because it's expensive to keep me in that hospital. On the other hand, I'm going to die, as I almost did. You can make more money kicking the woman out of the hospital right after birth because, sure, having that lactation consultant and having those trained nurses around and having her there for those extra three days costs money. So if it's all about making money, then, sure, progress and efficiency are going to mean kicking people out of the hospital. And that's why we have to think about all this differently. I mean, I think it's, it's if we only think about this in terms of how easy it is for the private equity company that owns your hospital to make money, if that's what we think efficiency and progress are about, then the private equity company is going to make money, but we're going to live shorter lives. And that's, that's the balance, that's the equilibrium that we're going to find. We have to think about this a different way. One of the things that you say is you, you had a lot of rage, and, but you learned empathy. Explain what you mean by that. Brian, you asked these short pointed questions. Um, so, we, uh, you know, other, other hosts, like they kind of, they kind of wander for a while and I think and I make notes. Okay. So, and you're asking me, you're asking me now about, you're asking me now about. Well, you ought to hear the president get upset with me when I ask him questions. <laughs> I'm not upset with you. I love it. Um, the, um, you're, but you're asking a pointed question about a, about a pointed thing. So, I start the book by writing, I start, so the book, Our Malady, is based on notes that I took in the hospital, in, um, in, in five hospitals, actually, uh, in December of 19 and January, February, March of, of 2020. And the very first notes were about, were about emotions. And the first emotion was, was rage. And the rage was about dying. The rage was about imagining a world where I wasn't, about, about a world where my children were alive, but I was no longer there. That, it, was, it was a rage against that particular nothing. That's what I wrote in my diary. I wrote that particular nothing, like that, that world where I wasn't, but where other people were and where I would no longer be living with rage them. Rage against the dying of the light. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder, like, if that, even if it's that poem that put the word rage in my mind, but it wasn't that poem that put the feeling in my mind. What put the feeling in my mind was that I almost died. I was still on the brink of death. I couldn't move my body. I could barely talk, and I didn't want to die. Um, that was the rage. The empathy came on, too, though, and it was like a completely different feeling. It was like a soft feeling, like a, a, a watery feeling, like I was floating and the, the, what the empathy was like was, I was, it wasn't that I would like, I had to live. It was that I was thinking about it all from the point of view of my kids or from the point of view of other people and how things would be like if I were gone from their point of view. And that was a very different feeling than the rage, but it worked together with the rage. And because those two things came first and because they were so elemental, they got me thinking about freedom also, that freedom has those two parts, that of course, on the one hand, like we rage to be ourselves, we strive to be ourselves. But on the other hand, we can only do it with other people. We can't be free without the help of other people. It's impossible. And so those two things somehow have to go together, the rage and the empathy. Or as I write about it in the book, the solitude and the solidarity. Yes, you said freedom is solitary, but it takes solidarity. But I wonder, that that's when I read that, 
is freedom solitary? I don't think that you can have freedom without the solidarity. I think they are one and the same. Um, you know, it's been said that the most selfish person is the most selfless person. One who works towards everyone else's uh, greater good eventually helps themselves out more than the purely selfish person. So do you really think that freedom is solitary or is must it be that we have solidarity for us to be free? There's so, a neat question for you. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, so I, I think, here's what I think. I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of good things in the world and they don't resolve down to any one good thing. So I, I, I wouldn't want to say that ultimately selfishness and selflessness are the same thing or ultimately oh, and solitude boil down to the same thing. I think they're different. And I think that's the interesting thing about being human. You know, we, we kind of, we want to boil everything down to one idea. We have that, yes. we have that but I think it's not, I think it's not right. And I think it impoverishes, I think it impoverishes freedom when we do that. I think solitude is one thing and solidarity is another thing. But I think to learn how to be solitary, you need the solidarity of other people, right? Yeah. Um, and you, you can't, if you just never met anyone and you're lonely and anxious and afraid, you're not gonna know how to be solitary. You might know how to be lonely, but you don't know how to be solitary. And on the other hand, you know, to, to provide, to, to be the person who provides solidarity to others, that has to come from somewhere. That has to come from your ability to be solitary. You have to, have, you have to be a source of something that you can then provide to other people. So I think those are two values. I think they're different values, but I think you need them both to be a free person. I think that when you touch upon some of the, uh, and for those who don't know, I'll, I'm just going to briefly tell your story and fill in the, the, the blanks if I get it wrong before, you know, before we go to break and come back. <laughs> but um, you had an appendicitis. You um, went in out of several hospitals. You were, dis, uh, we were misdiagnosed for sepsis. There was a nick in your liver and the sepsis nearly killed you. You went seven, was it seven hours without treatment? Well, I was in the emergency room for 17 hours. 17 yeah. hours, yeah. And and usually, as most doctors will tell you, you got to catch sepsis a lot closer than that. It's a lot sooner than that, within an hour or so. So um, it, it's actually a miracle you're still here. Um, I, do you ever reflect upon that? I don't think it's so. So I, I try... I'm trying really hard to stay away from the whole, like the whole metaphysical language of miracles. Yeah. Well, like, let's stay I, away from the metaphysical. Like when I was like, no, you, you just, you do what you need to do, Brian. But, <laughs> but, no, but let's stay, I mean, for the sake of argument, I, I'm not necessarily saying using miracle as, as a metaphysical. Right. I mean, it could be a met, I mean, whatever it was that happened yeah. to you was uncommon to say the least. Yeah. So I'll go with that. I mean, I don't, the reason why I'm allergic to the word is that, I don't like, I don't want to think of this as a happy end. I mean, I'm glad I'm alive and I, I you know, and I, it sounds dumb, but I appreciate life more now and uh, all the things around like, like a breeze or a, a hot cup of tea in my hand or whatever it is. Like I feel them all more than I did before. Um, I appreciate everything more, but I don't want, I don't like the happy end. And the reason I don't like the happy end is that I, I, I think, we shouldn't be relying on, I mean, I'd be a little unfair to you, so just indulge me, but we, I don't want to rely on miracles. I don't want there to be miracles, and I don't want doctors to be heroes either. I want doctors aren't, doctors are just normal people, right? Doctors are my friends, they're my neighbors, they can be good, they can be bad, they can be indifferent. I don't want miracles, I don't want the doctors to be heroes. 
I want us to have a system in which our doctors and our nurses and our physician assistants and our transporters and everybody else can work as, as well as they can. And we don't, we don't have that system. And I, I, want to, I want a system where, you know, when, pe when people have a routine condition like mine, we don't end up having a conversation where we have to talk about a miracle. You know, that's, that's what I Right. I, I, I feel you. When, when, when they stuck the chest tube in me and they said, oh, it's a miracle you didn't die. I'm going, no, you stuck a chest tube in me and you drained out the blood. That's why I didn't yeah. die. There's nothing miraculous about that. Yeah. You finally figured out what the hell to do. Thank you. Yeah, right. yeah, I agree. <laughs> we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Uh, three, two, one. Hi, and we're back. The show is Just Ask the Question. Uh, I am your host, Brian Kerman. In case you don't know, I named the show because of uh, Helen Thomas. And the first time I walked into the White House briefing room, she told me, whatever you do, Brian, doesn't matter if they answer the question, doesn't matter once the, what the answer is, just ask the question. That way they can't deny that the issue has been brought before them. And then, of course, Sam Donaldson told me, yeah, listen to Helen. She'll tell you how to ask it. And, I'll, and then listen to me, and I'll, I'll show you how to yell loud enough so you get it answered. So <laughs> those were my two mentors in the White House briefing when I first went there. And so hence the title of the show. So now that we're back, I, I do want to uh, dwell a little bit into politics. Um, on page 53, I love this. You said the one piece of information that best predicts whether uh, Mr. Trump won or lost a county in November 2016 was the degree of opioid use. Why is that a salient point to make? Well, I think no matter what we make of that connection, no matter where we're coming from politically, we ought to be thinking about that. Uh, we ought to be thinking about the, the opioid epidemic in the United States, which goes on and which has been made worse by COVID because folks are not being treated uh, the way they ought to be treated. I, I think there's a longer story here, which I wouldn't want to connect directly to, to Mr. Trump. For me, the longer story is about pain, which is one of the subjects of the book. Um, I, I come from a part of the country where there's now a fair amount of opioid addiction. Uh, when I was on the ground in 2016 doing political stuff myself, I was working in neighborhoods which where there was a fair amount of opioid addiction. I, 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 what I think is that we're in a country where pain used to make more sense than it does. You know, before 1979, when manufacturing jobs peaked in this country, hard work in a factory made a lot of sense. Before the last couple decades, when small farming started to become impossible, hard work in agriculture made a lot of sense. And I'm not saying those things don't make sense now. They do make sense, but they make sense for fewer and fewer people. And that ethic that we had um, in my part of the country, and that a lot of Americans have, that you suffer, but you suffer because it brings you something. It brings something for your family. It gives your kids a better chance than you had. That whole story of the American dream has been broken for 40 years. It just doesn't, that doesn't happen to very many people anymore. And so what do you then do with the pain? Because now we have people, now we have fewer factory jobs, we have fewer small farms, um, there's, there's a smaller future, there's a receding future for both of those things, and we have more Americans who are in pain, and they don't have much of a place to go. 
Um, and so this is where we get to the opioids because I think a lot for a lot of people, suffering, suffering pain, not talking about pain at some point becomes taking the pill and not talking about pain because there's no other choice. There isn't a physical therapy. There aren't the doctors in the countryside. There aren't the hospitals. There aren't, there aren't other choices. There's the pain and there's the pill. And that's what I don't like. I don't like that so much of our medical system, especially away from cities, is either pain or the pill. And I think, that's an, I think it's an unfair choice that an awful lot of Americans find themselves in. Then when you get to opioids, you get to opioid addiction, you're in a world where a lot of things that used to be important to you stop being important to you. It's a lot harder to think about the future. And a character like Mr. Trump, who delivers the quick hit, um, who can tell you right away, you know, the way, the thing that you want to hear, that character works very well if you're already in that world. And so I don't, I'm not trying to blame people. I'm not trying to say that like, this is a benighted part of the country. It's my part of the country. What I'm trying to say is that w this should concern us, um, that, that, that we've let so many people get so far and that this is the kind of politics that comes out of it. Well, when you talk about the politics, look, I, <clears throat> I was there on the South on the day he told me it was a hoax. Tried to deny it later, said that um, he didn't want to let people off a, a cruise ship because he didn't want the numbers to go up. And then later said it would be like a miracle and evaporate by uh, um, Easter. And then, then one day, like a miracle, it will go away. And now I'm being told that no one could have done better that this, that the uh, administration's response to the coronavirus is better than anything else in the world. And yet with a quarter, what we have, what, a quarter of the deaths and 4% of the world's population, I think. Um, as a man of science, as a man of history, as a man of letters, when you listen to that, what do you think? I, I think, I think you've already nailed it. It comes down, it comes down to truth. It comes down to truth as a value. And if you are, are you as a person, if are you as a person, are you as an American ready to face the facts or not? Because if you're not, there's always going to be a politician for you. And in this case, it's Donald Trump. There's always going to be a politician who tells you what you want to hear. That it's, that it's a hoax, that, it, that a miracle is going to take care of it, that you can get access to a test, you know, all these things which weren't true, right? But those are the things that people wanted to hear at the time. And that's what he, he's got. He's got good pitch for that. He knows, he knows what people want to hear. Um, and that's, that's what he gives us. And he keeps, and he'll, he'll keep doing it. But that's, that's the way a tyrant approaches politics. The way someone who cares about civil society or law or democracy approaches politics, he says, we're, or she, we're living in this world of facts. This world of facts throws up some challenges. Here's the real challenge. Here's how we're going to meet it. And, we, and then this is how we're going to deal with it. And a virus is a good example of that because you can't, you know, you can't shrug off a virus. If you, if you deal with a, if you, if you apply political magic to a virus, which is what Mr. Trump has done, um, you're going to get, a, you're going to get mass death, which is what we have. We have mass death. We have more, at this point, you know, more than 200,000 Americans surely dead. By the end of the year, we'll likely be pushing 300,000. Um, and it's mostly unnecessary. Um, South Korea, which had worse starting conditions than we did, higher population density, um, right next to China, um, they their death they, they have their death rate is one one hundredth of ours. If you take Germany, right, you maybe think Germany is a more central country, uh, a more comparable country, it's about one in five of ours. So you know, conservatively, uh, there are you know there are one hundred fifty thousand Americans who are dead who should not be dead. Um, that is pretty much the worst disaster in recent American history. It's, you know, it's, 
it's it's Vietnam three times over and it's and it's just getting worse. But I think it comes down it comes down to can you face the facts? Do you want to deal with the facts? Because if you want the facts, then you got to look for them. And looking for them means testing. Mr. Trump is a classical tyrant. I mean, just like Plato wrote about actually, he, it's all that matters is the image. And so the facts are going to hurt the image. The, if the stock market goes down, that hurts the image. If the numbers of tested people who test positive go up, that hurts the image. Only the image of the tyrant matters. And in a, in a, in a pure tyranny, we all have to die just so the, just so the image is better. And that's, that's the basic logic. That's the logic here. When you look at the logic of that, and which sheds a great deal of light on what we've gone through in the White House covering the administration for the last three and a half years, there's one inescapable thing that I just, I, I can't get past. And that's, in the book, you talk about the press and how there, you know, there's a vast desert of coverage. And we can get into that a little bit. But to manipulate the pandemic for that image is what I see from my end. Mm-hmm. There is a, he has taken advantage of the pandemic, so there are only 14 people in the press briefing room. There are very few people that cover him. He brings in sycophances of uh, people uh, to ask questions, and we are manipulated into being merely <clears throat> props in a, in a daily uh, press briefing that is now no more than than a high school pep rally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you look at what you see on TV, do you see him manipulating? And I've already confessed, I believe it. But do <laughs> you find him manipulating the pandemic for that image? Well, I mean, I think that question answers itself. I think the, the, the interesting thing is that to a large measure, it, it works. I mean, that's, that's, that's the worrisome thing. Um, because it, it forces us to confront our, our, our notion that people want the truth or that people actually want to face up to challenges. What Mr. Trump is doing is he's saying, hey, look, we don't need the truth and we don't have to face up to challenges at all. We can just, you know, we can just kind of lie down. We can lose this pandemic and still celebrate, right? I mean, that's part of the magic of Trump in general is that you can be a loser and you can celebrate. You can bankrupt yourself six times and you can celebrate. Um, you, whatever, you, can, you can fail over and over again and you can celebrate. And that's, that's, I think, part of, part of his attraction, you know, that you can, he can, like the, the biggest, as his own national security advisor, you know, told him, this is the biggest challenge you're going to face. F, right? Couldn't have been worse. Couldn't have been worse. And we're still going to celebrate. And so one, one has to like, one has to recognize that that works to some extent anyway. And one also has to recognize that there's a certain amount of skill and consistency behind it that he doesn't allow himself to be judged the way that other people are judged. And that's a, you know, that's a political skill that, that, that he has. So of course I see that, right? I mean, I see, I see him from the very beginning, you know, what I argued is that he's going to turn politics into a form of entertainment where the stakes are just how you feel at a given moment and not the policy outcomes in the future. So what's wrong with the United States? How do we fix that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're, you're a professor of history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you mentioned, I mean, you, you, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the mechanisms that get us to the truth. So a spectacle is really easy, right? Like it's real. fireworks are easy. Making things blow up is easy. 
Um, social media is easy. Things that attract our attention at the kind of animal level, totally easy. And ironically, the more technology we have, the more we become like beasts, right? We used to think machine plus man equals God. It turns out machine plus man equals beast. Um, so what we, what we need to realize is that like to get to truth, truth is not just that like how you feel after somebody's made you feel that way, right? right. Truth, is, truth is what is actually out there in the world and it doesn't give itself to you. In fact, it usually isn't what you feel. It's usually not what you expect. And so you need mechanisms to get to truth. And what we've seen in this country is a dismantling of those mechanisms. Um, social media is part of it because social media replaces factuality with disposition. Um, it takes you away from the world and it, it, it jolts you with the stuff that you, your body wants. But the other side of that, although partly caused by it, is the death of local news. And this is something I deeply believe in, that people need to have reporters around them reporting on the school board and the mercury in the water and the high school basketball um, and is a company coming to our town or not coming to our town. They need reporters who they recognize as real people um, and they need those facts because when they don't have local facts, then everything suddenly becomes a polarizing game from Washington or it becomes propaganda from, from, from Russia or China. I mean, we're now in this position where if you talk to people about COVID, you're just, and this was true in 2016 as well, when we're about during the election, you're just as likely to get some propaganda trope that was thought up 10,000 miles away than you are to get what's happening in, in the next county. So I, 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 there are a lot of things I would say, but my number one currently about how to fix this country is to find a way to pump money back into local journalism and create local factuality. Well, now you've read my book. So that's, <laughs> that's that having run local newspapers for many years. You know, the, it, was the, it was the U.S. government that did this, beginning mm -hmm. with Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. In 1981, he brought in a member, uh, a guy named Fowler, to run the FCC. And in, up until that time, uh, they had looked upon, the U.S. government looked upon the airwaves as a sacred public trust. And yeah. uh, Fowler said, no, it's no different than selling toasters. So what they did was release restrictions so that people could buy each other up. And today, there are, uh, although there are twice the number of people on this planet is on the day you were born, and more than twice than on the day I was born, there are half the number of reporters. There are whole parts of the US government that go uncovered. And the acquisition of wealth and the con consolidation of news media ownership has destroyed local media. And then at the state and local level, they've gotten rid of restrictions uh, on uh, government notice ads and stuff that help bring money into these smaller newspapers. And they're doing it online, on social media, saving the government money. But it, what's happening is that it's at the expense of local journalism. And you're right. I, I don't disagree with you. In fact, that's the whole thesis for the book that I'm writing is, is on that and, and how it has over the last 40 years and every president from Democrat to Republican has been a part and parcel of doing this, dismantling the First Amendment and allowing the consolidation of news. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when I first got into this business, about 80% of what you see, read, or hear was owned by about two dozen companies. And today, more than 90% of what you see, read, or hear are owned by a handful, maybe five or six companies. Mm -hmm. And so that consolidation, I use the uh, uh, for example, in, uh, you used, I'm going to use the same example you used in your book, The Courier Journal and Louisville Times. 
when it was owned by a family, it was routinely called one of the top newspapers in the country, always made a top 10, Newsweek's top 10 list. It sold out to Gannett uh, upon the death of the owner, Barry Bingham Sr. And so here you had Gannett, who was a large newspaper, until a, a conglomerate. Until then, the Courier-Journal Louisville Times had reporters that were in bureaus all over the country. They had them in Eastern Kentucky in the coal regions. They had a, a bureau or affiliated bureaus overseas. And they had six or eight that just covered DC for Kentucky. Well, when Gannett came in, they said, well, we can save money. Let's get rid of this and that. We already have these reporters mm -hmm. at our bureau. So we'll just use our bureau reporters and not use the Kentucky reporters. And yeah. therefore, the reporting has ceased to exist. It's turned into a shopper. And there are fewer reporters covering more and more. And that's the problem. And I agree with you on that, but I don't know. I, I don't know that there's a solution if you don't break up the media monopolies. I think that's got to be where you go. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm with you completely. Um, it, it makes you can't. I mean, so freedom of speech takes place in a space. You know, the, the, the conversation about freedom of speech itself has really degraded in America. I think like we're, we're freedom of speech is just like I grunt one way and you grunt a different way. Right. And then and we defend our we defend viciously our, our right to grunt in slightly different ways, you know, to just emote and I emote and you emote and we call that freedom of speech. The freedom of speech is. Yeah. 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 Freedom of speech is about a space. It's about a space where you where there's factuality and where there's interpretation and where people are producing this. You know, the word republic, um, the, 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 the public matter. Right. You have to have a public space and that public space is only created when you have people who are out there whose job is to figure out what's 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 actually going on and the 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 centralization the inequality thing i mean this is another thing which like which plato talks about that if you only have a few rich people that warps reality yes that warps reality you have to it has to be decentralized um if you want reality has to be shared um, or otherwise everyone starts talking about the same things that those few rich people are talking about and then you no longer have a republic. I mean, that's a warning that's thousands of years old. Well, that's, and, well, and when I say most people don't understand what free speech is, look, you and I could disagree. We're just two assholes that disagree. It's when the government imposes its will upon you to not speak that free speech is, is, is actually comes mm -hmm. into play. And what happens is when the government reduces the number of reporters, reduces the number of people involved in the national discussion, that's when you destroy free speech. And it's been an ongoing uh, effort by the government and consciously since uh, Ronald Reagan took office. And that's the scary part to me is that not only do we not understand what free speech is, but we oftentimes, uh, as you say, emote without, without ever stopping to realize the facts behind what it is that we're speaking about and limiting the speech to just, and, and that again, I guess I'm going back to what you're saying. <clears throat> when you limit the speech to just the rich, to the haves and what their arguments are, then we lose the idea of, of free speech and we lose equal protection under the law and we, we lose freedom. We lose our rights to, to be treated by a hospital and, and a doctor. I mean, all of that shrinks as the speech declines and becomes less free. Well, so we also, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. we know we also lose our patriotism because yeah. if we can't see the facts from Louisville 
or the facts from Kansas City or the facts from Hartford, Connecticut or the facts from Sacramento. If you can't see the facts from different places, you're not seeing the country. You know, what you see instead is me and my interests and people who are like me on the internet who have the same feelings, but you don't feel without the facts, you don't, you don't feel the country. And this, I mean, what you're saying also connects directly back to this pandemic that we're in. Um, one of the things which I was really struck by is, you know, the local reporting was interesting. You know, their local reporters in Florida caught the state um, messing with the data, you know, local reporters in New England um, caught some nursing homes who were piling up bodies. And then what I think is, okay, the local reporting is really good. The local reporters are the ones who noticed, for example, in St. Louis, that the first 12 people who died were all black. And okay, that's really essential. And, but it's only about one-tenth of what needs to be done because we just don't have enough local reporters. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, one of the reasons why the pandemic went the way that it did is that people were listening to Washington when they should have been reading local news about a surge of flu-like symptoms in local hospitals. But the local reporters to report that just didn't exist. And so, you know, you could, you, rather than being in contact with something which was happening in your county or in your city, you were being influenced by these, you know, weird rituals that were taking place in D.C. Ultimately, when you say the cause of some of our lack of liberty is, is, is in healthcare, is that not really, though, a symptom? Isn't it, if you expand it, isn't just a symptom of the problems that we're facing in this country? Or do you think it's causative? I think it's both. I, that's a really smart question. I think, it, I think it's both. I mean, I think the fact that we are not as free as we should be means that we get overwhelmed by, um, by the people who make a lot of money on the healthcare system as it is now. So in that sense, the fact that you and I are just peons, um, that we're not as free as we should be, makes the problem worse. But I think it also goes the other way. That is to say, I think we have a notion of freedom that's just too narrow. We think that freedom, we, we have not, we don't talk about the body when we talk about freedom. Yeah. We talk about things like speech, which is a little abstract. And then we talk about the market, which is not a person, you know, but actually another abstraction. You know, we put the word free in front of a bunch of things, but the only thing that free really belongs in front of, in my view, the only place that adjective should be is in front of people. I don't want to see it anywhere else because I don't care whether a market is free unless insofar as it makes people free. I don't care. I don't care. I only care about people. I don't care about abstractions. I only care about people. And if a person is to be free, that person needs to have their body. And you know that it's simple, but when I couldn't talk, I didn't have free speech. And when I couldn't leave my hospital bed, I didn't have freedom of assembly. And when I thought I was dying, I didn't have freedom at all because freedom is about imagining the different futures that you can be in. And that I, liberty and the that, pursuit of happiness. Exactly, the pursuit of happiness. And when Jefferson wrote about pursuit of happiness, he meant the pursuit of happiness in your body. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't some crazy abstraction. You know, it, We say that phrase over and over again, but we never think about it. Pursuit means you're actually out there chasing something on your feet. You are on your feet. You are moving around in the world. That's what Jefferson had in mind. So if we exclude our body, from, from the discussion of freedom, I really, I really don't think we can be free then. I think you have to have some notion of health as being part of freedom. And by the way, Jefferson also thought that. Jefferson, thought, Jefferson said you can't pursue happiness without health. So we are, we are actually narrowing our concept of freedom way down below what the founders, you know, that the founders were thinking. And of course, you know, we're, we're also, we're narrowing it beyond what just makes any sense. Because if we don't, if we, and this is how the two things come together, if we don't think of our freedom as including our body, then our body just becomes one more object to the other people make money on. 
right? Which you either is what they do. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 the choice, right? And Americans have really gotten trained to think, well, you know, the, the, actually, it's normal for people to make money on my sickness. That's fine. You know, I don't have a right to healthcare. Like I, I published, I published, I published an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News the other day, and you know, which I like to do, and. I got some responses and the responses were like, I don't want a right to healthcare. Why should I have a right to healthcare? I'm thinking, well, why should you have a right to free speech? Why should you have any rights? Like if you're so keen to renounce your rights without even thinking about it, like what kind of America is that? We should be thinking, what freedoms do we actually don't need? Don't you find that to be an emotional reaction to a challenge of a preordained thought that they really gave no thought to, to have before they adopted? What you're doing is confronting people with their own ignorance and scaring them, it well, appears to me. Because yeah, they don't want to face the fact that, holy crap, you might be right. I right. might have a right to, to uh, but I've got to defend this because this is a way I've always thought about it, so you've got to be wrong. I mean, oh, well, people that's... stay in their own philosophical and emotional cul-de-sac, yeah. afraid to face, as we were discussing earlier, the truth, and the truth and facts often fly in the face of our emotional gut response. So, yeah, well, you're, you're describing, I mean, you're describing the challenge of being a human being, right? I mean, that's, right. A, challenge, that's a challenge of enlightenment. I mean, at first, our, of course, our, our first reaction is always going to be, no, I'm right, and I've, I've already invested in something, and I'm going to stay invested in what I'm invested in. But this is like precisely what's so great about the idea of freedom itself, because if you believe in freedom, among other things, you have to be free to keep rethinking what freedom is. <laughs> Instead of just being like, oh, freedom just means that, you know, the market. Free, free. Free. <laughs> yeah, that's, I get you. I, I'm yeah. with you. That's the, what you know, I have reporters when I train reporters, they come to me and I always tell them the facts may fly in the face of what you think the story is. So they'll come to me and they go, well, I think this. And I go, I, I don't care what you think. Exactly. I barely care what I think. What exactly. do you know? What can you prove? Well, yeah. I thought I'm, I'm writing this story. I said, no, you're writing the story where the facts take you. Otherwise, yeah. if you want to write an opinion yeah. piece, we'll label it as such. We'll base it in the yeah. facts that we know. And then you can tell me why you think what yeah. you think. But first of all, I don't like people writing opinion pieces that work for me unless they've got 10 or 15 years experience just because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's fundamental. So I'm, I mean, I'm a historian and what I tell my students, just humor me for a second, um, sure. this may not be interesting, but what I tell my students is you go into the archive with a view of what you're going to find. And if you find what you think you're going to find, that means you have not done your job, right? Something is wrong because you go, the only reason you have a hypothesis is to get yourself to do the work of finding the facts. And once you find the facts, your hypothesis has got to change and you just keep changing your mind until you get somewhere close to the truth. If, it, if, if the facts are reaffirming what you think, it's probably, probably, you know, you're probably wrong. That's it. And that's it. Well, you're a historian and I, I draft the first draft of history. I write that first draft as a reporter. And that's exactly what I have city editors and, and editors tell reporters mm -hmm. is that you go in, if you've come back with a story that matches everything you thought, you didn't do your job. Exactly. That's yeah. the, and that's, anyway, well, well, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Hi, and we're back <laughs> and, uh, after that break. Uh, Dr. Snyder, we were talking a little bit about uh, the truth and facts 
So uh, no one gets out of this podcast without a little bit of fun. So truth and facts, I got to ask you a couple of just fun questions. What kind of music you like to listen to? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how fun that is. I mean, I. <laughs> Do you play? I mean, uh, no. I mean, I used. I could. I used to be able to play saxophone a little bit. Um, I, I so I so there's the music I listen to when I work, right? Which is like Bach. There's the music I work. I, I listen to when I'm trying to finish something, which is like the rock and roll music from the nineties that I, that I, that I liked. And then there's a music I listen to when I'm trying to exercise, which is like the stupidest possible thing with a beat. <laughs> All right. So Beatles or stones. Um, I, I admire this. I admire, so I once, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I once, uh, yeah, I once, I mean, this tells you how, how like, I was once invited to a party where like the stones were going to be there and I didn't go because I had a lecture, which will like tell you like how much of a geek I am. I, I, I told this to my students and they were like, because like, the lecture that I, the, the lecture for which I missed, for which I missed this party was a lecture to my history class. And I started the lecture by telling the students, like, I'm here talking to you instead of being with the stones. And they're like, Professor Snyder, like, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, but um, so I, I admire the Stones for being there, and I admire the Stones. But um, I, the, but I'm, I, I am Beatles. Beatles I'm, fan. Yeah. Paul or John, Ringo or George. I can't talk about that because my 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 brother Michael has very strong and complicated opinions about these about the Beatles, and if I say anything in any direction, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hear he's, about it. He's gonna <laughs> hammer you. <laughs> yeah. The only the one the one that I the one that I the one that I've met is Paul. The one that I've met is Paul. Oh, that's you met Paul. That's uh, that's that's something. How was he? He was extreme. So he was getting an honorary degree from my university. So he was up on a stage with a bunch of people wearing funny clothes, and I was wearing funny clothes. So I figured, okay, I might as well go up on that stage too. Like Paul McCartney's just sitting there; he's not doing anything. So I just marched up on the stage and started making small talk with Paul McCartney. And he was he was he was very he was very gentlemanly and very kind, and and uh, and uh, it was a, it was a very pleasant conversation. And I'm glad I did it. <laughs> favorite comic movie oh comic movie oh god help me out it's been so long since i've actually watched a movie all the way through um i mean when i was a, when i was a kid i was crazy about slapstick um like like airplane you know when i was when i was a teenager yeah. i liked like you know um like like you know caddyshack and dumb movies like that cool. classic cool. classic comic movies oh dear What's a what's a comic movie? I don't know. Pink Panther, I guess. I had, weakness, I, had weak, I had a weakness for the Pink Panther movies. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the most important issue? And this one isn't funnier, but what do you think is the most important issue facing our country in 2020? You know, like I think that question is just a challenge to language because there's you, you, there's no way to pack in everything and get it and get it right because I know it sounds crazy, but like, it sounds like such an abstraction, but of course, you know, the, the answer is global warming and we can't like, and like it's killing us, it's killing our children, it's killing our grandchildren, it's making life uninhabitable and it affects all the other things that are going on too. 
all this, like all, a lot of the political stress we have comes from the fact that some people are aware that the world is dying and they care. And some people are aware that the world is dying, like Mr. Trump, for example, and they're just trying to get as much out of it as quickly as they can, right? And so that creates the fact that there's this horizon on life itself makes everything, everything, everything worse. So, I mean, so the, the thing that I care the most about is the value that we've been talking about a lot, which is, which is freedom. Like every day, that's the thing that I, that I care about for me and for my family and for my country. But if we're asking about an issue, which is gonna make everything else impossible, it's the issue which is burning out our West right now. Um, yeah, that's and it's created, there's, there's what, five hurricanes in the Atlantic or five tropical at one time in the Atlantic yeah. right now, one or two in the Pacific. There yeah. are those, I've talked to scientists who say, look, you could look at the novel coronavirus as being a, a byproduct of, of climate change. That, that as we, as the uh, globe warms, that there will be, these additional pandemics will be easier to spread and will be more prolific. So everything that you're looking at, and whether or not that's true, I, I'm not a scientist, I don't know. But when a scientist says, at least look at it, you have to at least evaluated as such. Yeah, I mean, there's a simpler point about that, which is that Americans in the South are dying of air conditioning. You know, we're, you, you, the air conditioning because of global warming, but the air conditioning circulates the same air and that's how you get COVID and that's how you, yes. that's how you die. People are dying of air conditioning. But it also like the global warming, it goes back to the conversation about facts. You know, do you want to face this or not? Like this is a challenge. And the, you know, the thing which breaks my heart about it is, this is a challenge that we can beat. We can beat global warming. We can beat it. Like we have the technology, you know, we can beat this. I mean, my, my other brother is a physicist who's working on who's working on plasma physics, on fusion, like which is one of many ways we have to beat this. We could beat this. We could beat it in 20 or 30 years, but instead we're deciding to just like live in this fantasy land and 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 roil everything up. And we're this is the time that we need. We're 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 wasting. And that's that's what I find heartbreaking about it. Are you hopeful for the future? <laughs> that's that's a well-timed question there, Brian. Nice sense of time in there. What's the worst? What's the worst thing that could happen? And by the way, is everything going to turn out okay? Um, so I've already I've already told you that I don't believe in miracles um, and that I don't like happy talk. But I am I'm not hopeful. But I, I have I have the thing which I told you before, which is I think I think we can do it. I mean everything. I mean my, our malady, the book that we're you know supposed to be talking about and kind of are talking about is about healthcare. And like, that's a big enough challenge. And I think we can do that. I think we could have a system in this country, which is not worse than let's say Canada, or maybe even Austria. I think we can do that. And I'm hopeful that the pandemic is the thing which pushes us to realize that the system we have is one of many possible systems. And among developed countries, it's both the most expensive and the most deadly. So we should have a different system. And yes, I, I'm, not, I'm not hopeful because hope is tricky, but I am convinced that we can actually solve the problems that we're facing. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're talking in the second half of 2020, I think we're at a tipping point. You know, I think, I think things are going to get much, much worse or they're going to get considerably better. I don't, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a middle ground. I, think I agree with there. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I was talking to a social scientist friend of mine who said that he views this particular point in time as a tipping point, but says it's like, um, and I, I don't know if I can do what he said justice because he took a half hour to explain it to me, but, but basically saying that we're seeing the dying of the old guard and that the, the, um, that, Trump represents that old guard and that 
the hope lies in the education of younger people who will inherit what we will leave behind. And if we have faith and put our trust in that, then perhaps the going forward, it will not be nearly as difficult as we look at it to be now. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, what, so when I, I mean, when I look at the, 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 the students I teach, when I look at the next generations down, I think about, I, I think about this from their, I try to think about this from their point of view and think about how much more intense and real and palpable it is from their point of view. Because, you know, going back to where we started, I mean, life expectancy in this country peaked in 2014. What does that mean to a kid who was born in 2001 or 2002, right? Um, you know, the, uh, for, the last, for the last 40 years or so, inequalities of wealth have been going up. So what does that mean for a kid who's been alive for 20 years? That that's, he's already, you know, for, he's already caught or she is already caught in, in, that, in, in, in that motion, right? So from that point of view, I think the thing to keep in mind is that if it's going to be different, it's also going to, it's, it's going to be better. It's going to be different. Yeah. It's going to be very different, you know, and, and ideas like, like the green recovery or the green new deal or the third reconstruction, like big notions like that are necessary to, because things could be an awful lot better, but they're not going to be an awful lot better by, by, by going back to 2016 or, you know, whenever, whenever we think things were good. Right. That you can't get caught in that, like, I mean, if Trump has taught, taught us one thing, it's that you can't get caught in the Trump of nostalgia, the, the, the trap of nostalgia, no matter where, you know, your nostalgia is for. So I think things can be a lot better, but it's going to be because not just younger people, you know, because the other thing I don't like is like putting it all on the younger people where we say like, well, we messed up the world, but because you're young, you're going to fix it because you're young, you know, go team. And that's like our pep talk. You know, but younger people and other people are going to come up, are going to come up with ways of making things very different. That's, that's the hope in healthcare and everything else. Well, I think we'll have to be a part of that equation. I don't think, but I guess the point he was making is we grew up, you know, I, one of my earliest memories is of the death of John F. Kennedy. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I remember my mom crying, my dad crying. I watched it. I had, I thought my mom was crying because uh, I, we saw Jackie walk off the airplane and it was a black and white TV. And so I being a, you know, all of two and a half w w sat there and watched her with, you know, I thought it was chocolate sauce on her shirt and it was, you know, it was Jack's blood. And I mm -hmm. thought my mom was crying because, you know, that woman spilled chocolate sauce on her dress. And we lived in an area that I, in an era, or I grew up in an era where it was much different than the reality we face now. But those who grew up even prior to me, members of, of our generation, uh, you know, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers, but that front end like Trump, they grew up in an entirely different uh, environment than the kids that face now. So they don't grow up with the preconceived notions that we have. They're dealing with what is in front of their face today. And I, I, what scares me is I think, you know, we, we all, you know, my parents wanted it, their parents wanted it. That's why we immigrated to this country was we wanted uh, better for our children. And I think you're looking at, um, for the first time, I think I saw a, a study that says our children won't be better off than, than we are. And I think that hard reality is what we're gonna have to face if we're gonna get better. Um, so that's, I, I think it's not going to happen if it isn't both of us together, you know, the oh. generations, as you said, you know, in, in the book, I, I, I mean, solidarity. That's yeah.
Yeah, no, they're not. I mean, it's it's been true for a while now that kids can't. The, the, the peak was right around 1980. I mean, if you were born right after the war, you had a 19 and a 20 chance of, of, of making more money right. than your parents. It hit 50-50 right around 1980, and it's been declining ever, ever since. So, I mean, I think that, you know, one thing we got to get our minds around is that that boomer experience is not repeatable. And, 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 and the, the, the good side of that is that it shouldn't be repeatable because there were a lot of things, frankly, that were wrong with it. And, um, and one of those things is imagining that a better life is necessarily the same thing as just having more money. Because yes. that, that gets us down to you know, where we started, which is that this business of health, we're in this competitive commercial system where the people who are a little bit better off because they have a little bit more money think that they're okay. But actually, no, none of us is okay. Everybody in the, everybody's in a spoiled system. So you can make healthcare better for everybody and you can spend less money on it. Um, you know, so the, healthcare is actually an example of how things can be better if we change the model rather than tinkering with it. Last question I'll ask you then is, do you, are, are you working with people to make that happen? Do you know people in Congress that want to make it happen, can make it happen? How do we make that happen? I'm, I, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a book, this is a book that comes out of a, literally out of a hospital bed. And this is a book that I was, I was writing, you know, to try partly to show myself that I could still do it. And then getting a little further, I was trying to make my own experience be something that could be maybe useful for other people. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to make the argument, you know, I'm not, I'm not building coalitions. I'm not lobbying. I'm just trying to make the argument that there are some basic things that we can do that we should start with the children, that we should put the doctors in charge, that we should believe in truth. We should treat healthcare as a right. Like th that's where I came down after this experience. And I'm just trying to put those ideas out there. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Snyder, thanks for being with us today. I'd love to have you back sometime. It was a fascinating conversation. I could do this for hours, but <laughs> we'll probably bore everybody to death. <laughs> the name of this show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.